be in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 23 to 28. Why don't, I will begin by reading these verses as we get started here. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed to men, for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ offered, was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him. He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. This morning... <clears throat> going to look and see how Christ is the better sacrifice. Now we are jumping in at the end of a chapter, but kind of in the middle of an ongoing argument that Christ is better than in the Old Testament. He is better than the Levitical priest. He is better than the high priest of Aaron's line. He is better than the rams and bulls. He is better. He brings a better covenant. So we're in the kind of the middle of this larger argument. And as we were, if we were to walk through chapter nine quickly, just to kind of uh, recap some of this context, the first section, nine, one through five, deals with what the, the tabernacle was and rehearsing what some of those items were were. Uh, indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service, the earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was prepared, the lampstand, the table, the showbread that was on the table, which was called the sanctuary, uh, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, part of the tabernacle called the holiest of all, the most holy place, the holy of holies, which held the golden censer and the ark Ark of the Covenant, overlaid with gold. Uh, verses 6 through 10 describe the limitations of the, uh, of the Levitical priests. Uh, these things were, were prepared. The priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing their services, the offerings, um, the, the uh, burning of the incense. Uh, but into the second part, the Holy of Holies, only the heart, high priest went, and just once a year. And, and he was bringing in the, he was bringing in, and this was part of what Rod read this morning, is that once a year he brought in, uh, first for himself, the blood of a bull to, to, to uh, atone for his sins and the sins of his household. And then he went back out, took care of the goat, and came into the Holy of Holies to offer atonement for the people itself, the people themselves. 
And he's saying that everything there in, in, in the temple, in the tabernacle, the tabernacle itself, all these are copies of the heavenly sanctuary. And then in verses 11 through 15, he describes the heavenly sanctuary a little bit. Christ entered with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained an eternal redemption. It says that he works as the mediator of the new covenant. And then in verse 16, he begins the argument that, the, uh, that why the mediator had to die. For where there is a testament, that's also the word for, for covenant there, when there is a testament, think of like a will, it's necessary for the death of the testator. Who, is, who, who made the covenant? Who made the will? Well, nothing happens with the will until who, who, he who made the will has died. Inheritance can't be given out until the death of the testator who created the will, the testament. So, of course, Christ being the mediator of the new covenant, bringing these things into existence, into uh, being able to provide these inheritance, had to die. And then as we come down, it talks about uh, even that the first covenant, uh, there in verse 18 and down, that the first covenant was dedicated with blood. Moses sprinkled the, the book of the law, um, the people, the elements of the tabernacle, and they were all cleansed and bound to the first covenant that way. And then in verse 22, and according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood and without shedding of blood, there is no remission, no forgiveness. This brings us into our section here, beginning in verse 23. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in heavens, all the items in the tabernacle, the tabernacle themselves, the copies of the things that are in heaven should be purified with these, the blood of rams and goats and bulls. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. The, the earthly things, the copies, the shadows of the things of heaven were purified and, and with the first covenant, dedicated with the first covenant with the blood of animals. But they were limited. They were limited to the earthly service. The heavenly things needed to be purified with a better sacrifice. Now, the Greek does say better sacrifices. That is just merely a... A, a grammatical agreement of plural with plural. <laughs> Christ isn't sacrificing again and again and again. We'll get into that a little bit later. It is merely a grammatical uh, agreement of plural with plural. But these, these needed a better sacrifice. So verse 23, we'll start here, and we see that heaven was prepared. Heaven prepared in verse 23. We've talked about this a little bit already, but what are these copies that he's talking about? It was necessary that the copies of the things in heavens should be purified. This is referring back up to that earlier part of the chapter where we discussed and has been addressing the limitation of the Levitical priesthood and their sacrifices. 
and that immediately preceding verse show that the tabernacle and the tools and the articles of the ministry were cleansed before God by the sprinkling of blood. We see that in verse 22. The author has been saying that the tabernacle and the elements of the furniture were copies that represented the true heavenly realm. For Israel, in one sense, the tabernacle was to represent heaven on earth, in one sense. Because in the Old Testament, when the tabernacle was created, and with the first temple, the Shekinah glory, the presence of God himself, was in the Holy of Holies. It was... A, not that he needed the temple. That's our, we discussed that plenty of times in the Old Testament. Not that he needed a temple made of, by hands, but that he chose to dwell there to be with the children of Israel. The earthly items of the tabernacle and temple were cleansed with blood of earthly sacrifices. But the heavenly items required a better sacrifice, a better sacrifice than bulls and goats and rams. Well, this leads us to a question. I think it's an obvious question. And even as I was going through this, every commentary brought this up. What needs to be purified in heaven? What needs to be cleansed in heaven? Well, the answer is, there are a lot of theories. I, there are a lot of theories. One commentary said there are nine interpretations, and he ran through them. Like, okay. <laughs> There's two that he kind of agreed with. But some see, some see this idea of, of cleansing in the heavenly realm. Some see it as a relational issue for God's continual fellowship with redeemed sinners. Others suggest that since Satan rebelled and still has access and a presence in the heavenlies, a special purification was needed. <clears throat> Warren Wearsby makes this suggestion in his uh, expository outlines. He says, these things may be, the, may be the heavenly people of God. He refers to later in chapter 12 of Hebrews and Ephesians 2.22 says it may have been the heavenly people of God who have been purified by Christ's blood. Or it may suggest that the presence of Satan in heaven, and we briefly touched on that, and he references Revelation 12, 3 and following, that Satan's presence in heaven demanded a special cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary. The one that I've kind of settled on at this point is actually, I feel like, the most simple answer. I don't think I'm sidestepping the issue here, but it, it sometimes the simple answer is the best answer. Uh, Al Mohler says this in his short commentary at Hebrews. He says, the reference to purifying the heavenly things does not mean the heavenly places needed cleansing because they were somehow defiled by human sin, which was another one of the arguments. 
He says, rather, it speaks to the effectiveness and superiority of Christ's sacrifice. He goes on, Jesus' sacrifice is better because it is associated with heaven itself, the place of God's very presence. So it's not necessarily that the heavenly things needed to be cleansed or purified, but Christ's sacrifice is better because it's, it's more directly related to heaven. And it is, it is there in heaven that this is happening. And so it is better than those of the lambs and bulls and goats. So to say this another way, heaven didn't need cleansing. Sinners needed cleansing. And the author's image of purifying heaven is likely a symbol of our cleansing before God. Christ, so Christ prepared heaven. Christ redeemed sinners to continually be in fellowship with God. His sacrifice was greater, better than that of bulls and goats. This brings us to the next section, verses 24 to 26. Here the author writes, For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have, to have had to offer, would have to suffer often, since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away said by the sacrifice of himself. Here we see Christ as the high priest. High priest in verses 24 to 26. Well, how do we see Christ as the high priest here? First, in verse 24, he entered heaven. Christ didn't enter the physical holy of holies of the tabernacle or temple to make the atonement. First off, and this is going to sound strange, he couldn't enter the holy of, physical holy of holies. <coughs> he couldn't have entered that in, in the temple in Jerusalem because he wasn't of the tribe of Levi. He wasn't a priest. He was of the tribe of Judah. He wasn't allowed physically... Genealogically, he is not allowed any too far into the temple. He was of the tribe of Judah, which, because he is of the line of David, and Judah is the royal tribe. Christ didn't enter the physical Holy of Holies. He entered heaven. He entered the very presence of God to make atonement. For sinners. Christ, our high priest, entered the true sanctuary, not the copy of the sanctuary. The tabernacle and the temple were just copies, shadows of the real sanctuary. The Levitical high priest was a copy pointing toward Christ's better priesthood. 
The earthly high priest entered the tent that was a mere copy of God's sanctuary and sprinkled the blood of goats and bulls on the mercy seat as he interceded for the people of Israel. But Jesus Christ entered heaven and is before the Father personally interceding for us who have believed. The songwriter captured the idea well. They wrote, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Christ entered heaven when he made atonement. And he is still there interceding for us. Next, we see that Christ offered himself once, verses 25 to 26. Jesus is in the presence of the Father making, excuse me, Jesus is not in the presence of the Father making sacrifice for our sins again and again. The author of Hebrews states very clearly here that Jesus offered himself once. We see that in verse 25. Not that he should offer himself often, then in verse 26, he then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now once at the end of ages. We also see this explicitly in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The writer of Hebrews actually repeats this idea further down in chapter 10, verses 10 through 12. And and by that, we will have been sacrificed through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Christ offered his sacrifice once. And his sacrifice was a better sacrifice. Christ's sacrifice and atonement for sin was sufficient once. Christ is not re-crucified with every sin. Christ is not re-crucified when we celebrate the Lord's table. This concept of Jesus's perpetual sacrifice, as I understand it, the repeating of his sacrifice is unbiblical. Christ died once for all. The work of redemption was done on the cross, and victory won through his resurrection. The writer says that if Jesus had to offer himself often, he would have had to suffer often from the foundation of the world. We know in other passages that since before the foundation of the world, we have been called, we have been prepared, we've been elected, There are other passages that that reference Christ as being the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world, but it was still 
once. It is not an ongoing, perpetual sacrifice. Christ provided a finished atonement. Christ was better than the earthly high priest's work because it was accomplished once. The, priest, the high priest would have to go back year after year, bringing the blood of another bull and another goat to make atonement, to make atonement with blood, blood that was not his own. Christ's atonement was better because he was and is without sin. Therefore, his own blood was shed in place of ours and is better than any animal. The animal didn't have any choice in going to the offering. Christ did. His sacrifice was better than any animal. In the second part of verse 26, we see that Christ put away sin. Christ came at the culmination of all the previous ages or dispensations. Second part of verse 26, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Go back just a little bit further. But now, once at the end of ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is similar to what Paul wrote in Galatians 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. When the fullness of time had come, Christ came into the world at the culmination of the previous dispensations with his voluntary sacrificial death to put away sin. The word for sin also has the, the sense of annulling, of annulling. So he put away, he annulled the power of sin. Christ came at the time established by God's perfect wisdom. So Christ was a high priest because he entered heaven, the true sanctuary. He was a high priest as he offered a better sacrifice, a sacrifice that only needed to be sacrificed and offered once. And a sacrifice that was better because it came at the right time and it put away sin. It annulled sin. Christ's sacrifice was better because his interceding work is before God in heaven, not the copy made by humans' hands. It was better because it only needed to be done once. Christ's atoning work is sufficient for us for all time, and he entered and he ended the reign of sin. This brings us down now to verses 27 and 28. And as it appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart for salvation. 
Here we see the heavy price, a heavy price in verses 27 and 28. Christ's death was a divine appointment, a divine appointment in verses 27 and the first half of 28. This verse is is very clear as it is appointed for men to die once. Every human being has an appointment with death. And so did Jesus as the God-man. But his appointment with death was a payment. Death comes for every person. People spend thousands, even millions of dollars trying to cheat death, but death will come. Adam and Eve brought death into the world because of their sin, and every living thing on earth has or will experience death. Because God the Son entered the world as the God-man, he still experienced death, but his was voluntary and substitutionary. He died to bear the sins of many. He took our judgment. It's in, here in verse 27, it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. Now this is, I do think there's a, a, a if, if someone dies as an unbeliever, there is an element of judgment immediately following death. But it's likely that what, he's, what the author is referring to here is probably the final judgment. You're going to die, but then there will be final judgment. Because, because Christ died and was the better sacrifice and bore the sons, sins of many, he took that judgment when he took our sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ took our sins, and by taking our sins, he took our judgment. On the cross, he bore the full weight of God's justice and judgment on sin on his person. Likely, this was during the three hours of darkness that covered the land and climax when he cried out to God, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He paid the price for us. But the second half of verse 28 reminds us that we look forward to Christ's return. Those of us who are believers, we look forward to Christ's return. We have a promise here that to those who eagerly await for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Christ's return will be the final salvation for his people. His second coming is not about the problem of sin. That was dealt with at his first coming. Look back at verse 26. Uh, But now once at the end of the ages, he appeared to put away sin. The problem of sin was dealt with at his first coming. And his second coming... It is not about sin, it is about salvation. 
there's actually, in this part of verse 28, there's actually an allusion back to the Day of Atonement. The high priest would enter the outer courtyard, as we read this morning. No one would be in the, in the courtyard uh, where the burnt offering would be, and no one would be in the, the tent itself. Only the high priest would enter. The high priest would be seen in the outer courtyard to offer the sin offering. He then would enter the tent, first the holy place, and then enter into the Holy of Holies, carrying with him a vessel with the blood of the atonement. Here he would pass from the sight of the people. They would, as he entered the tent, anyone near the front of the, of the courtyard would, would lose sight of him. He would be inside. He would be alone before God. They waited with bated breath for him to reappear. For if he reappeared, then God was satisfied and atonement was made. He followed the things as he was supposed to. He did the things he was supposed to in the correct way, in the proper way. And God was satisfied with the atonement being made. And his reappearance from the inner sanctuary back to the courtyard was met with great joy from the people. Those who were eagerly awaiting his return. So believers eagerly wait for Christ to return. Not dealing with sin. That's the other half. Of, that's the other thing. As soon as the high priest came out, the... We'll have to walk through this briefly. He, he had to offer a bull as a, a sin sacrifice for himself and his house. He had to go make atonement. He came out. He took, there were two goats, one that was supposed to be the offering. That goat was offered. He took some of the blood of that goat, went in and made atonement for the people. When he came out, he took the other goat, known as the scapegoat. He would place his hands over it or on it. He would say a prayer and effectively, in an image sense, for the, in an illustration for the people, all the sins of the people for the last year, especially as uh, referenced here, uh, the sins of, of ignorance, ones they didn't realize they did or forgot they did or something, was on this goat. This goat was then led out into the wilderness so far out that he wouldn't find his way back to camp and released. So the atonement was made in the presence of God, and the sin was sent away. So the high priest appeared, reappeared not to deal with sin. He was sending the sin away. So even now, as we wait for Christ's return, he's not returning to deal with sin, but to final salvation. Where, where we receive our glorified body and we spend eternity in, with him. And more specifically, the, the millennial reign begins with his return. But did you notice something in verses 24 to 28? 
the writer has one word reoccur three times in verses 24 to 28. He mentions Christ appearing, appearing three different times. They're a little bit out of order as way we would normally think about it, but there's three appearances, one in verse 24, 26, and 28. Verse 26 speaks to Christ's first coming, his coming to make the offering for crucifixion, to pay for our sins. Verse 24 speaks of Christ appearing in heaven, making intercession for us, cleansing us from sin before the Father. And in verse 28, refers to Christ's second coming, his coming to usher in the millennial kingdom where every knee on earth will bow and every tongue confess him Lord to the glory of the Father. Christ is the better sacrifice in that he took the, our judgment for sin, he took the judgment for sin, but overcame death. His sufficient offering will be confirmed again with his second coming. His reappearing will be for the great joy of believers. As we mentioned earlier, this verse, these verses are part of a larger argument about Christ being the better way than the Mosaic system. Christ is the better sacrifice for sin. He is the better high priest for us before God. The shadows and copies of things we see established in Scripture will and do pale in greatness to the superior nature of Christ. There was a, another song that we were, I was thinking about doing this morning, but I just couldn't get everything lined up the way I wanted to. Um, but I'd like to introduce this one at some point. This song is called Christ the True and Better. And it, it, it's four verses and it compares Christ to Adam, uh, Christ to Isaac, to Moses, and to David. I won't go through the whole song, but I, but I want to bring a few things out. It says, Christ the true and better Adam, son of God and son of man, when tempted in the garden, never yielded, never sinned. Dying, he reversed the curse, then rising, crushed the serpent's head. Verse 2, he's compared to Isaac, the humble son of sacrifice, who would climb the fearful mountain there to offer up his life. Laid with faith upon the altar, father's joy and only son, their salvation was provided. Oh, what full and boundless love. Verse 3, it's, uh, he is called the true and better Moses, called to lead a people home, God's great glory to be known. But listen to these, these lines. And this is what caught my attention in this passage, and I wanted to maybe bring it out today. It says, with his arms stretched wide to heaven, see the waters part in two. See the veil is torn forever. Cleansed with blood, we pass right through. 
See, the veil is torn forever. Cleansed with blood, we pass now through. The last verse compares him to David. Lowly shepherd, mighty king. Champion in the battle. Where, O death, is now thy sting? In our place he bled and conquered. Crown him lord of majesty. His shall be the throne forever. We shall heir his people be. Let's close with a brief word of prayer before we continue.